The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then he lets those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that he is near 
at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Now, after hearing that scripture read, I'm sure that we all see very clearly that Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he will come back on January 14th, 2016. Obviously, I'm kidding. And yet, through the past 2,000 years of church history, Many men completely disregard Jesus' clear teaching in this text and try to ascertain the day that the world will end as we know it. Jesus says in 1332 that no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Let me be direct. Anyone who tries to predict the coming of the Lord and the end of the world is a nutter, and you should disregard them. Okay? I'm just going to say it right now. I grew up at a church. I remember, I'm pretty sure this memory is accurate. Uh, I was nine, I think, at the time, where a guy came and spoke at the church, and he wrote, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Christ Will Come Back in 1988. Surprisingly, that's out of print. Tried to get it this week, but it didn't happen. But there's two things that we can know for absolute certainty, with absolute certainty from this text. One The end of the world is going to happen. Jesus says as much here when he says that heaven and earth will pass away. And so we need to spend some time thinking about it. But the other thing that we know for certain is, guess what? No one knows when that's going to happen. Not even Jesus. Okay, he says it himself here. So before we jump into this, I, I just want you to know, this is the most difficult chapter in the book of Mark. I'm going to cover it. The next two weeks, um, it's dealing with prophecy. Anytime you deal with prophecy, it's really difficult. Um, It's just really hard, okay? So I read the best scholars that are alive today, and some of them that have died are gone, uh, and very few scholars agree on this text because there's so much, it's it's very murky in a lot of places. So I'm going to do my best. I'm going to let you know basically what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach for about 50 three minutes or so, and then I'm just going to stop, okay, because this, this isn't like a normal sermon that I get to preach to you, okay? This is something very strange and very weird in the middle of Jesus. It's two days before Jesus is about to be crucified, and it's sparked by this little conversation that the disciples have. They look at this building, and they go, oh, check out these stones, and Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them about the end of the world, okay? Now, it's it's difficult. I'm just going to lay that out there, um, and we're going we're gonna to do our best to work through it. So um, before, I, before we jump into it, I want to pray, but let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're going to go verse by verse and do our best, uh, but I'm going to pray, and then I'll catch us up to speed really quick. 
Father, I thank you that all of your scripture is God-breathed, that it's all from you. It's all profitable for us. We can learn something from every word that you've written down for us. And I thank you for giving us this word that leads us into truth, that helps us understand who you are and what you've done and what you are going to do. And this morning, as we're uh, studying a text that's uh, difficult, I pray that you would help me, that you would help me think clearly and speak clearly, um, that we would have that clarity that Joel, that we sang about this morning, and I pray that you'd help us hear and understand, and anything that's inaccurate, that's just me, that's wrong, I pray that would just people would disregard today. Um, but I pray that you would um, speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit and the uh, inerrant word that you've given us. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's get caught up here. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark this entire year. We took a little four-week break for the Advent season, but we find ourselves now in Matthew cha- or Mark chapter 13. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the shortest of all four of the Gospel accounts. Okay, It's the shortest record of the life of Jesus that we have. Matthew, Luke, and John are much longer. But what's unique about Mark is Mark is the oldest. It's the earliest record of the life of Jesus anywhere in the world, which makes it the best place to study to familiarize yourself with the real Jesus. And it was written by Mark who was interviewing and transcribing the words of the Apostle Peter. Okay, so this is in the Gospel of Mark is an eyewitness account to the life um, of Jesus by the Apostle Peter. And what Mark does is Mark, he, he's a guy that I like. He uses the word immediately a lot. He moves really fast. He completely skips the whole birth narrative. So Matthew, uh, Matthew, Luke, and John all talk about, you know, the advent, Jesus' birth, and all that. Mark doesn't. Mark jumps off right at his baptism, right when he comes to start his ministry, approximately the age of 30. And over the last 12 chapters, we have been going verse by verse through this book, discovering the real Jesus. He is controversial. He's countercultural. He's authoritative. He's disruptive to the status quo. Jesus, in many ways, was an absolute revolutionary. And yet, unlike a revolutionary, he made no grabs at power. He isn't trying to set up a political party or an earthly kingdom at all. He isn't trying to do what the Jews wanted him to at that day and overthrow Rome and free Israel from its subjugation. He's not doing that. No, what we saw, and specifically in chapter 12, I mean, if you are new, you can go back and listen to those sermons online, was Jesus was here to overthrow religion. Religion is basically good advice on how to get right with God. And Jesus didn't come preaching or bringing good advice. He came preaching what he calls good news, the gospel. And good news is different from good advice. Good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth to live a perfect life and then to die a substitutionary death for mankind to do all of the work necessary to make God and man right with each other. See, that's the difference between good advice and good news. Good advice is here's what you must do to get right with God. Good news is here's what God has done through Jesus to make you right with God. Good news has been done. Good advice is never finished. Religion is always good advice. And one of the ways that Jesus has been showing that he came to overthrow religion 
And it's been through his interactions with the Jewish religious leaders and the temple. Okay. Now in chapter 12, which is we're, we're coming right out of, you see, you read that, you see Jesus doing this. He comes to the temple. He does a little something, something, and he walks out of the temple and he camps out across the hill. Okay. Then he, the next day he goes to the temple. He comes back out. He goes to the temple. He comes back out. He's been going in and out of the temple, having some very heated discussions with the religious leaders. At one point, if you remember, he flipped over tables. He drove people out of the temple. He said, you've turned the temple into a den of robbers, right? Or a den of thieves. At one, po- at one point, Jesus saw a fig tree. The fig tree was supposed to be producing these fruit that come before figs, this pagum, and it wasn't. It was a fruitless tree. It looked like it was fruitful, but it was fruitless. Jesus cursed it. Then he went to the temple and cursed the temple. And what he did with the fig tree was representative of what he thought of the temple, that Jesus was cursing religion at its roots. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms through all of chapter 12, I am the new temple. I am the locust day. I'm the place of God. If you want to meet with God, you have to come to me. Don't go to a temple any longer. Come and meet with me. Jesus Christ has become the new temple. And here we are now, two days before his coming, crucifixion, and Jesus walks into the temple for the last time. And one of his disciples, or actually he's walking out of the temple now. He's walking out of the temple. We can see him, look at chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, a, and what wonderful buildings. Now, I don't have the time to go into a lot of detail uh, with the temple. We talked about it a few weeks back. I showed a picture up here. We talked about the, the temple, the temple itself took up 35 square acres. Um, It was absolutely beautiful. It was huge. You could fit 15 football fields inside of it. That's how big the temple courtyard area was. And here we go. The disciples and Jesus are walking out, and the disciples go, look at these stones. Look how beautiful this temple is. Now, this is interesting. Archaeologists have unearthed these stones, and these stones have been uncovered as long as 42 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and they weigh over a million pounds. Think about that. The magnitude of the temple mount and the stones used to construct it exceed in size any other temple in the ancient world. Why do they say wow? Because this is the temple that Herod rebuilt, okay? And he looks at the size of these stones, and these stones are so large, they weigh a million pounds. Now, I can't even fathom how that happened. I can't even fathom how mankind construct, man constructed this, right? How many people would it take to move a million pound stone into place? And they were ornate stones, archaeologists tell us. They were, they were you know, uh, they, were, they had all kind of magnificent designs etched into them. And the disciples walk out and go, Wow! Look at this building. Look what man has done. This is the place of God. This is the temple. Look how magnificent these are. And Jesus says this. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is not impressed with the temple. He says all of these stones in the temple's construction will be torn down. And then Jesus, he walks across 
the Kidron Valley. He climbs up onto the Mount of Olives. He sits down and he gives what's been known now as the Olivet Discourse. Okay, this is Jesus' last teaching. It's the longest section of teaching in the whole Gospel of Mark. And it's all about this experience that he just talked about. He said, there's coming a time when this temple that you look at with these million pound stones will be toppled and not one stone will be on top of each other. And he walks across, he sits down and look what the apostles do. They, four of them specifically, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, here, two questions. When is this going to happen? What? What Jesus just talked about. When will the temple be destroyed? Okay? And what are the signs that this is going to happen? All right? Now, it's important that we understand what's, what's going on here. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. He's done with religion. Okay? He's done with it. So the questions that they're asking are about the destruction of the temple. Now, what Jesus is going to do and what makes this so hard to interpret is Jesus is going to describe all of this that's going to happen before the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple. And then he's going to throw in this little thing about his second coming. All right. And what makes it really confusing is then in verse, I think it's 30, where he says all of these things are going to happen within your lifetime. It's we look at that and go, well, he must have been wrong. Jesus hasn't came back yet. But what Jesus is doing is he's talking very specifically about the destruction, the question that they asked. When will these things happen? But what Jesus does is he uses this question to, to, to kind of ask his own question in a sense. And he's pointing towards the end of religion and he's saying, and also the end of the world. So Jesus is using their question about the end of religion and the end of the temple, and he's going to kind of hijack this question and use, his own, use it to teach about the end of the world. And in a sense, the end of Jerusalem, the end of the temple, is a microcosm. It's a depiction of what's going to happen at the end of time. Okay, So everything that we're going to read about today, in one sense, except the coming of Christ, has already happened. All right? So let me, let me, but you might not get that. So let me just wade into it because I, many of us have watched really bad movies, right? And there's, listen, I've read this and Kirk Cameron is not here. Okay. I've read it several times. Thank God, no Nicolas Cage in this. Okay. Now, so let me just say this chapter then is about eschatology. What is eschatology? Eschatology that comes from the Greek word eschatos. It means end. So this whole chapter, in a sense, is about the end of religion and the end of everything, okay? The end of the world as we know it. Eschatology is the study of the last days, of the end times. And it's really, really hard to study because the way Jewish writers wrote what's called apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature, very descriptive, very visionary, it really sounds like someone took some LSD and wrote their vision down, okay? That's what it sounds like. All right. And it's hard. Like, and this is where we go wrong. If, if we're thinking that you can go in here and you can find helicopters. Okay. There's no helicopters in these descriptions. Okay. He's not describing modern day things with his own. That's not what's happening. Okay. It's just a way. It's a type of literature. It's a genre of literature that he's using in this section of text. And it's really hard to understand, but it's also hard to understand because of this, our perspective. Okay. 
when Jesus said all of these things, none of them had happened. And I'm going to get into it in a second here. Jesus is describing something that's going to happen, but has not taken place yet. Today, we are in a unique situation where some of these things have happened. Most of them have already happened, and a few of them haven't. Now, why is it hard, hard to understand? Why does it make it confusing? Let me describe it like this. This is not perfect. The end times are more like a mountain range than they are like the ocean. Okay? The ocean, you know when you're in it right? You're either in it, you're not. It's got clear delineated lines, right? Of where the ocean begins, where the ocean ends. But a mountain range is not so clear. And any of you have ever driven out to Denver, right? It's just flat, but you don't know. You think it's flat, but actually you're rising, 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 rising. You don't even know you're in the mountain range until you either pull out to a higher perspective or you look at a topographical map and you realize that the Rocky Mountains actually spread across the United States from Canada to New Mexico, over 3,000 miles, right? So it is with the end times. There is a clear beginning point, and there's a clear end point, but where you're at in there is hard to describe. And there's a lot of peaks, and there's a lot of things going on, and it's pretty confusing. Now, this might just cook your noodle a little bit, okay? But... When it comes to Jesus and it comes to God's word, if we can zoom out and we can get a new perspective from God's word, we find out something very strange. That the end times actually began at the incarnation of Jesus. Okay? The end times began when Jesus, the second person of the, men, the, of the Trinity, God's son, put on flesh and was born of a woman. That was a was the event that began the end times, okay? The incarnation of Jesus was, in one sense, the beginning of the end. It was the cataclysmic event that triggered the countdown to what we can call the end of days. And the last day, so that's the beginning. The incarnation of Jesus was the beginning. And the end is... The last day ends, what we see here, with a triumphant and glorious Jesus Christ returning to earth in power to gather his chosen people to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So we have these two parenthetical events, right? The birth of Jesus, God becoming flesh, and Jesus Christ coming back to destroy all evil and all wickedness and to completely renew the, 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 the revelation tells us Heaven comes down, the earth meets in the middle, like the, this, we get a new heavens and a new earth, right? Everything perfect. Both of these are end time events. And we have a whole lot of things that happen in between that, right? Whole lot of things that happen in between that. Most importantly, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God and power. So, to stick with my illustration, the end times are like a mountain range, Okay? that stretches from the birth of Jesus to his second coming, and in between those events are a thousand different peaks. All important, but they overlap, and it's hard to tell where one ends and another begins. Okay? Hopefully that illustration might maybe help us, maybe it doesn't make help us, but we're going to work through this. Now, in verses 5 through 13, Jesus gives at least seven signs seven peaks in the mountain range that are going to happen before the end of Jerusalem, right? Before the temple is destroyed. That's what he says. 
And in 14 through 27, he gives at least four more, okay? Now, you're going to have to follow along with me. Please do follow along with me. I know this is going to be a little confusing, um, but I'm going to do my best, okay? So first off, he says this, not one stone, right, is going to be left on this temple. Here's what's interesting. Forty years after Jesus said this, Rome, there's a little insurrection in uh, Jerusalem, and Rome sent in the governor or the general Titus, and Titus came in and absolutely demolished the temple and all of Jerusalem. Okay? Now, this prophecy happened. They burned it to the ground. They burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground, and they came in and they pulled all the stones apart and ripped it down. And they're like, and this prophecy was fulfilled 40 years after the death and resurrection, or 40 years after this right here, 40, 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this prophecy, we're, we're in that mountain range, right, has already happened. The temple was absolutely destroyed. What they thought would never happen again happened. Now let's keep reading. Verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, so what are some other signs, right? See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So Jesus right there is saying, listen, there's going to be people that are going to try to lead you astray talking about the end times, okay? There's going to be people that want to make a lot of money off of the end times. There's going to be people that make television programs and books and have movie deals, right? And listen to what Jesus says here. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray, okay? Right there. False prophets, false messiahs will come. Now, that happened in Jesus' day. That happens today. That's, I mean, old news, right? This has all happened. Three, the next thing. So we've got the destruction of the temple already happened. We've got false messiahs already happened. Um, Then we have, many will come in my name saying, I'm he. They'll lead many astray. Verse seven. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, look, do not be alarmed. Now, this is the exact opposite of the books and the TV shows and your internet and your, your Facebook feed. Everyone is saying, there's wars, the end time's coming, be afraid, build a bunker. Right? Jesus says, in the end, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. All right? Now listen, this has already happened. If there's World War III pops up tomorrow, it doesn't mean that the return of Jesus is any closer than we are, where we are right now. This has already happened, okay? When Titus came in, and this is what he's talking about, the destruction of Jerusalem. When Titus came in, that was the war that he was talking about. Let's keep going. Do not be alarmed. This must take place. But what? The end is not yet. He's not saying this war is a sign that the end is here. He's saying this war is a sign that, no, no, no. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It's been happening since forever. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Listen, we have terrible earthquakes all across the world. We have terrible uh, poverty and famines all across the world. They are not pointing towards the end of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the end times. They're not. It's already happened. 
This is, has already taken place with the collapse of Jerusalem. Josephus, in his book, The War of the Jews, he's an ancient Jewish historian for the time of Jesus, not a Christian. He said 97,000 Jews survived the siege by Titus, but 1.1 million died through starvation. What we're going to get to, where it talks about son rising up against father and father rising up against son, what the people trapped, the ones who didn't flee from the siege, what happened to the ones trapped there? They died of starvation. They cooked their children. They killed the weak and ate them. And 1.1 million died of starvation. This has already happened. It's in the history books. Jesus says, you're going to see all this stuff taking place, but the end is not yet. It's the beginning of birth pains, he says. Jesus is telling his disciples that all these terrible things are going to happen, but don't think the end is here. It's not the end yet. It's only the beginning. He goes on. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're going to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now this is, you read the New Testament, this is exactly what happens in the New Testament. We see the Apostle Paul, we see all, all the believers getting handed over, getting beaten in the synagogues, right? We see them inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking, right? This, again, has already taken place within the life of the disciples of the, the, when this was written. Verse 12, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have been put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Again, I've already said this, is, this happened with the siege of Jerusalem. But now this is where it gets weird. I'm just going to tell you this. This is where it gets, all of those things very clearly took place within 40 years of the lives of the disciples in the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, right? Historical fact. This, was a, this is a clear prophetic teaching by Jesus that, that is one of the things that we give us a lot of confidence in believing the Bible and believing the words of Jesus. 40 years before the event, Jesus absolutely predicted and prophesied that it's going to take place. And someone says, well, it was probably written after the fact. Absolutely not. If it was written after the fact, they would have included how it was burned to the ground, not just pulled the stones pulled down. Because the, the, the burning is what destroyed the city, and then they pulled the stones down on top of it. And we, this is a lot older than that anyways. Let me just keep going. But this is where we get into, this, is, this next section is kind of like standing in that mountain range. We're on a peak. We look back, we see things that have already happened. We're looking forward, we see there's still things to happen. And we're on a peak, this peak, I don't know. I'm going to be honest, I don't like telling you that. I don't, I don't think anyone knows what, what, what he's about to talk about here. There's a lot of hints, there's a lot of guesses, there are a lot of educated guesses, but I don't think we can know for, for certain. Let me read it. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation, now that's a crazy word, crazy sec, uh, couple of words there. And it's taken from the book of Daniel, okay? Another prophetic book, Daniel speaking about it. And it happened in the Old Testament when, uh, again, Jerusalem was sieged and 
this warrior came in and he put a pig on top of the altar and he offered a sacrifice to his own God in the altar. And this was the abomination of desolation. Well, Jesus uses this to talk about something that's going to happen again in the future. Now, in, in the future when he wrote it, this guy named, and this is, I know you guys, I know this is like heavy, but this, I can't get around it. In AD 40, okay, about seven or eight years, possibly 10 years after Jesus spoke these words, a guy named Kalugala, he tried to have an image of himself set up in the temple to be worshiped, uh, but his plans failed, okay? So Jesus could be referring to that. This guy was trying to get his own image into the temple, but he failed. So it didn't actually happen. So maybe Jesus wasn't talking about that. And many people think what Jesus is talking about, this abomination of desolation, is actually from 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, this coming man of lawlessness, maybe the Antichrist, that he's going to come and he's going to set himself up in the temple or he's going to set himself up and he's going to do something very sacrilegious. Okay? So I'm going to tell you, all the scholars have no idea what this is talking about. It could be talking about this Kalugala guy. It could be talking about Daniel, you know, when, it, when the Maccabean revolt happened, or it could be talking about the Antichrist coming in the future. But this is what it says. Let's keep reading. Standing where he ought not to be. And then Mark puts this, his own uh, insert in here. Let the reader understand. So whoever was reading this at the time under, should have understood what's going on, what he's talking about. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the end of the world here. He's talking about the siege of Jerusalem. Let the one who's in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Listen, he's not talking about the return of Jesus here. Like, oh man, when Jesus comes back in the sky and we're caught up in the air, I hope you're not nursing. That's going to be tough. Right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about there were warnings coming on the siege of Jerusalem. And if you didn't heed those warnings with 91,000 Jews, heeded the warnings and left and fled to Judea. But the remaining 1.1 million or 1.5 million that remained in the city, it, w it went really bad for them. They were surrounded and they were locked in. Okay. And so it was really bad for them if they were nursing. I already said some terrible, awful things happened. Right. That's what he's talking about. Let the one in the, uh, no, no, keep 18. Pray that it may not, not happen in winter. <laughs> See, it's very clear that he's not talking about the second coming, right? Like, second coming, man, I hope we don't get raptured in the winter because that would be cold. We're, you know, like, if Christ comes back in the sky and gravity is no more, I doubt I'm worried about it being cold, right? This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the siege of Jerusalem. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Now this is where I'm saying Jesus, I think, is beginning to hijack the conversation. And the only way I can kind of describe this is, parents, you should know this. You know how you can talk about things with your kids in the room? And some of those things could possibly be inappropriate. 
but your kids have no idea what's going on, but you're using this higher level of communication that's getting your point across with a wink or whatever, your spouse, and you're saying words that the kids are like, ah, but they don't really know what you're talking about. You know, I think Jesus is doing something kind of similar. Okay. He's talking about the end of the temple, but he's kind of hijacking the conversation and saying, but that's going to be kind of like the end of all things when I come back. Okay. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, I don't know if this has happened. I know there's been plenty of people that have, charlatans that have, you know, done signs, or whatever, maybe they haven't really done signs and wonders, but faked it. Could be talking about that, or he could be talking about um, a genuine, something that's genuinely going to happen at the end times, where people stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, and they perform actual miracles, and many people who don't know the scriptures and who don't know, the, you don't, don't know the word of God, they might be led astray by that. He could be talking about that. But Jesus says this, but be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. And now this next section, I would say, is clearly talking about the end of all things. It's clearly not happened. So I'm going to say, I think everything that I've described up until this moment can easily be argued that they've already happened. It's already taken place. It's in the time of Jesus, it was prophecy, but in our time right now, it's in the past. It's been accomplished. But what Jesus is about to say, I think it's looking forward for us. We're on the mountain range. Most of it's behind us. There's a few peaks left in front of us. And this is what it is. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds. Now, what does that mean? Coming in clouds. Let's say coming through the clouds. Coming in clouds. Well, the cloud in the Old Testament always represented the Shekinah glory of God. The absolute, the, 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 the real physical presence of God. That when Jesus comes back, he's bringing what we all want. The satisfying presence of God. Now, Christmas is wonderful, right? But everyone knows no matter what gift you get, we're never satisfied, right? No matter how many gifts you get, no matter how good they are, we're never satisfied. Why? Because we were built for the glory of God. We were built to be in the presence of God, and the presence of God is the only thing that will satisfy our souls. Well, all the way down, deep down satisfaction, right? Jesus, when he comes back, is bringing that, the Shekinah glory of God, the physical presence of God to be with us. And again, the Jews thought that was in the temple, if you remember, heard about the Holy of Holies, supposedly the Shekinah glory was hidden away in the, and Jesus says, I'm going to destroy the temple and I'm bringing the glory of God with me. Right? All right. <clears throat> Keep reading. And then they'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. That means the four ends 
of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right. Jesus here is describing for them his glorious re-entry back into his creation. Jesus' first entry came like relatively quiet, right? There were some angels and shepherds, but Jesus' glory was veiled. He came humble and lowly, lying in a manger. But Jesus' second coming is the most spectacular event the world will ever see. No more veiled glory. Jesus says, don't be deceived when someone says, oh, he came over here or I'm here. No, no, no. Everyone alive is going to know when Jesus Christ comes back. It's going to light up the sky. There will be no if, ands, or buts. Everyone will see him outshine the sun as he reenters his creation with great power and glory. But I'm not going to go any farther in the text. We're going to finish that next week. But we can't forget is that Jesus here is telling this to his disciples two days before his crucifixion, okay? And we've already seen throughout Mark, most of his disciples don't even believe he's going to die. They still think he's going to take over. He's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to get rid of Roman authority. He's going to set up this new earthly kingdom, and we're all going to reign with him, right? When Jesus said he's going to die, Peter rebuked him. Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When a couple of his disciples came to Jesus, said, Jesus, let us sit on the 12 thrones. Let's be at your right hand and your left hand. Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. So these disciples still, still can't get around their, their, their brains that Jesus is actually going to die. And Jesus is teaching them, not only is he going to die, but in the future, it's going to get really dark and really bad, and it's going to be really difficult for them. And then he's going to come back. I, I can't even imagine how they were processing this. And what I think what's going on, first off, what's not going on is he's trying to, them to coordinate their Palm Pilots or their iPhones to when he's coming back. Let's get this together, all right? Let's compute this, right? Jesus is clear. No one knows the day or the hour or the time. You shouldn't be trying to figure that out, okay? It's a waste of time to figure it out. But what he is trying to get across is things are going, it's like this. It's like a time release capsule, in their mind. It's like a time bomb. He puts a time bomb into their intellect that's only going to go off when things start getting really difficult. Right now, they are with the king. They're walking in. Everything's been pretty good up until this moment, right? They're with the guy who can walk on water. They're with the guy who can multiply fish and bread. They're with the guy who can turn water into wine. They're with the guy who can shut up the smartest people of the day and age, the priests and the scribes and the lawyers. He shuts them up and makes them look foolish. They're like, this is going great. And they're in Jerusalem. They're thinking, it's coronation time, baby, right? We're gonna, Jesus is going to set up this, the kingdom. And then he starts talking about this crazy abomination of desolation and the end times and red moons and stars falling out of the sky. And I imagine they looked at him like, well, I don't know about all that but let's get on with this Last Supper thing. And it went into their intellect. They totally didn't understand it. But a few days and weeks later, after the resurrection, or after Jesus' crucifixion with Peter, when everybody scatters and runs, and what happened? Then all of a sudden they begin thinking, oh, oh yeah, he did say he was going to be betrayed. Oh yeah, he did say he was going to die. Oh yeah, he did say that there was going to come persecution and tribulation. Oh, he, he did say all these things. And what did he say? He said, behold, I'm coming again. 
Oh, okay. And so this teaching is like a time release capsule or a time bomb that's meant to go off when suffering happens. And that's exactly what it does. Jesus is telling them, expect betrayal. Expect persecution. Expect governments to rise up against you and to try to stuff, stuff you out. Expect it. But also, expect that I'll be with you. The Spirit will give you the words to say. And expect that I'm coming back again. That all evil in the world has an expiration date. That the suffering and the persecution that you're going through, there is an absolute end date to this. So don't suffer as those with no hope. Suffer as those with one eye on the future return of Jesus Christ, where he makes everything right. You know what that means for us? Doesn't mean we should be scouring the internet and be on prophecy blogs and trying to figure out if some new world currency, what that means for us, or the uh, you know, some kind of mi- microchip that's going in our hands and our foreheads. At the- no, none of that. I'm just going to say, none of that matters. Everything in this pro- prophetic statement has already happened except for the coming of Christ. That's what we need to look for. That's what we need to hope for. It could be now, it could be a thousand years from now, right? That's what we know. So what, is it, what does this mean for us? It means we should never look around at our world and go, what's going on, God? What's ISIS, racism, murder, all the terror, all this. We should never go, what's going on? He's already told us all of this stuff. It's, it's the way of a broken world. Wars, rumors of war, nation against nation. It's the way the world is. We should never go, what's going on? Should never surprise us, but that's not all. Jesus told them about the evil of the end times, but he also told them about the glory of his second coming. See, Jesus wants our mind fixated on the glorious second coming because all evil has an end date. This is how we suffer without giving up. This is why we work so hard in our cities to renew our city and to make disciples and to bring glory to God. Because we know that all evil and all persecution and all turmoil has an end date. And so we're working, waiting for God to come back and finish it. And to renew it. And there's a sense where every good thing you do on this planet lasts into eternity. There's a statement that's gone around. It's been attributed to Martin Luther, but then people say it's not Martin Luther. And they've asked him, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? And and it's been said, he said, I'd plant a tree. What what, what does he mean by that? He, He means that this earth isn't going to be destroyed. It's going to be renewed and it's going to be restored. And planting a tree is a good thing that will last on into eternity because there's going to be trees in eternity. Scripture says the trees will clap their hands. John Wesley, when they said, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And he says, I don't think I would change anything in my schedule. 
See, the end of the world as we know it, when Christ coming back, is not something that should strike fear in our hearts. Now, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then it it probably should. I'm going to be honest. Because the end of the world is when Christ comes back and obliterates evil. And here's here's the reality. Evil is in us. And so if we want him to wipe out evil, he's going to wipe out us, every single one of us, unless you've had your sins forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. Right? That's it. But for the Christian who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the end is not something that should make us wring our hands and and worry. It should should be, be something that gives us great hope for the future and encourages us to work hard at renewing the earth and at making disciples in today's, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our families. It should give us great hope. And we see, we see exactly what should happen. And we see it in the lives of the believers. I'm closing here. They all scattered right? Like a, like a shepherd, like sheep without the shepherd. That's an amp. Like a sheep without a shepherd, they were, the shepherds, and they all ran away at, 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 the, at the death of Jesus, right? But then what do we see? We see and the resurrection of Jesus, we see these sissified believers that took off. We see them solidified. We see them with steel in their spine, standing before emperors, standing before kings, standing before anyone who will listen and taking a death penalty, right? We see Stephen stand up and he gets stoned, right? Right in front of their eyes. We see Saul there doing it. We see Saul get converted and become Paul. And, and this is what's concerning me. And I'll be honest, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. We're going to get this thing taken care of, I can tell. It's all right, I can hardly hear it. <clears throat> the, the doctrine of the second coming has encouraged Christians for the last 2,000 years to suffer and to live differently in this world. Because we know our reward is coming. We know Christ is coming to renew and to redeem and restore all things. That's the power the second coming of Jesus has on a Christian. When they spend their time thinking about it and living their life in light of it, it changes the way they live today. And I'm gonna be, I'm, this is what I've been thinking a lot about. Christianity grows best in the soil of persecution. Okay? Over and over, and we're going to see this next week, over and over and over, what does Jesus say in this text? Repeats himself? Stay awake. Be on guard. Be alert. Prosperity has a way of causing us to fall asleep. Our world right now is probably, our country right now, is probably the safest, most comfortable country that's ever existed. I know we've got all we got threats, but we are fat and happy, most of us, right? And that makes the doctrine of the second coming almost like, oh, who cares? I can't even, <laughs> most of us can't even imagine heaven. We can't even imagine a new heavens and new earth because our life is like pretty good. 
But when you are being persecuted, the doctrine of the second coming is what puts steel in your spine to, to persevere. And I wonder if, if a, a, more, a greater persecution comes on the church, which I do believe is coming. I think we're already seeing it in all, in all kind of areas of our society. Are we going to have the steel in our spine? Are we going to have the ability to withstand it? I'm reading a book by John Bunyan. Many of you probably have read it. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. We're reading it again. And this one, this certain edition has got John Piper's kind of biography of him in it in the beginning. And I had forgotten this, and I was blown away. John Bunyan, uh, unbeliever, he was, he, he was converted to Christ late in life, and he was married, he had four kids, and his wife, uh, his wife died. I can't remember what, how she died, but his wife died, and then he was converted, he was converted to Christ. He had four kids, uh, and, his, and his wife, was de- wife died. And immediately he felt a call to preach the gospel. And this was in England at the time, and the only, they had a state church, okay? We don't like, that's not, that wasn't great. They had a state church, and basically you could be Anglican or nothing, okay? And you had to be, and so he was, pre, he wanted to preach the gospel, but he didn't, couldn't go through seminary. He wasn't Anglican, so he was going to preach in this underground, uh, independent Baptist church. And he felt compelled by God. And they said, if you preach, we will put you into prison, Okay? you preach, we'll put you into prison. And I was thinking about myself, four kids, no wife, stop preaching, or we're going to put you into prison. Immediately, I'm thinking, I got to take care of my kids, I got to take care of my family. Okay, I'll back off, I'm going to figure out some sneaky way to do this, right? He refuses. He gets married again, so now he's got a new wife, four, four kids, his oldest daughter is blind, and he, he's imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and he's imprisoned for 12 years. Think about that. That's a good chunk of the life of your children. Imprisoned for 12 years. And then, of course, you know, 12 years, then the kings change, governments change. They say, okay, now, you, now it's okay. You can preach the gospel. And they let him out, and he preached the gospel. He leads a church of 120 people for the rest of his life. And he writes The Pilgrim's Progress in prison. One of the greatest books that's ever been written, one of the highest, you know, most sold books that have ever been written, and he writes it in prison. I was just, I was blown away by that this week, thinking about it. Thinking about this, the coming, the second coming of Christ, John Bunyan sitting in his jail cell for 12 years, meditating on the coming, with his children growing up without him, with his new wife living life without him. They had to live off of the donations of people from their church because she had no way to make money. She had to take care of the kids. Do we have that type of passion? Do we have that type of intensity? Do we have that type of endurance? Because those times could be coming again, and that might be required of us. Now, I would say the only way you can have that type of endurance is if you're living for another world. And I don't mean that in some wishy-washy, you know, way. I mean that in in, in the most real sense possible, that Christ's kingdom is going to be more real than the world we live in, and everything is going to be made right. And when we live in light of that second coming, it changes the way we live today. Let me pray. Father, uh, this text, uh, difficult, confusing in a lot of ways, 
But there are some things that are crystal clear. You are coming back, Jesus. You are going to make everything right when you do. And the other thing that's really clear is we don't know when that's going to happen. But you want us to be encouraged. You want us to stand strong. You want us to be awake and watchful for your coming. And I pray that we, that we would be. I pray that you would help us, that you, through the power of your spirit, would wake us up, would encourage us, would give us the strength to live in our world in a different way. That you would do all of these things for your own glory and our joy. And as we come to the table this morning, that uh, you gave us something tangible. While we wait for you, you put something in our hands. You put something on our taste buds to remind us that you came in flesh and blood and you're coming again in flesh and blood. And so as we take the bread that was broken for us, that represents your body that was broken for us, that we would remember that. We would take it and we would eat it. As we receive the wine or the grape juice that represents your blood that was shed for us, we would drink it and we would remember that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.